Hi, welcome to Tangent. I'm Edward Cohen. Today on Tangent, we have our first ever face-to-face -face guest, none other than Spencer Raskoff. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Co-founded and ran Zillow for a decade as its CEO. Spencer is also the co-founder at Picasso. He's also a New York Times bestselling author, and he has co-founded for other companies, and he's invested in 55 companies. Is that right? I think so. Yeah. yeah. And lose count sometimes, but yes. Counting. Close enough. <laughs> companies are in PropTech, in the future of work, and the creator economy. So Spencer, let's, let's jump right into it. Zillow, as we all know, you know, it's pretty much a verb. Poster child of PropTech 1.0 mm -hmm. uh, innovation, right up there with, with the Airbnbs and the WeWorks, probably with a better future than one of them. So I want to ask you, in this new wave of PropTech 2.0 that we're seeing, what companies have the potential to becoming, you know, the PropTech darlings of this next wave of innovation? Well. I mean, I guess I think of PropTech 1.0 as about search and discovery, kind of at the top of the funnel. And I think of PropTech 2.0 as companies that are more transactional at the bottom of the funnel. And, and Zillow, to be clear, is trying to migrate right. there right. Um, deeper into the transaction. And they, they tried it with iBuying, and now, of course, they're trying it through M&A and, uh, and just moving down the funnel in a variety of ways. But the companies, I mean, a couple of the companies that come to mind the bottom of the funnel are ones that are trying to fundamentally change the transaction. Mm -hmm. So EasyNock, for example, yeah. which I'm an investor in, which has a sale lease back product, mm -hmm. or Arrived Homes, which I'm also an investor in, yeah. which lets investors, individual consumers, participate in real estate as an asset class. There are companies that are trying to democratize access to home ownership and innovate at the very bottom of the funnel at the transaction itself. And they have extraordinary product market fit with consumers. I think those are the types of companies that will be winners of this stage of innovation in prop tech. Right. Yeah, it does make it does feel like in the first wave of innovation, a lot of potential consumers, a lot of potential investors were maybe either left out or we just didn't have the the tools there yet to include them in the, you know, investing in in, in these returns, for example, in, in single family rentals as uh, Arrive is doing. And we're certainly gonna touch on housing innovation soon, you know, what are, what are some of the factors are at play here in the new generation of startups seeking to transform real estate and, and how we build it, you know, how we buy, sell, own, manage and invest in it. I mean, you just mentioned arrived democratizing access to single family rental investing. I think an important attribute is simplicity. A lot of these startups that have been over the years around real estate 2.0 very complicated business models trying to change the balance sheet of a home. And I mean, I can I can remember a dozen of them sitting in pitches and thinking like, pretty sophisticated about all this stuff and I'm super confused. And like, how would I explain this to a regular consumer? Mm -hmm. I, I don't even know where to start. Okay. So for me, I mean, maybe I'm sort of slow, but that's like my first screen. It's like, is this something that's full enough to be able to explain to, to a novice. Um, and that's where a lot of these startups fall down. They, they sound great. They make sense from like an MBA point, um, but they just, they're too complicated. I guess another common attribute is that the founder needs a real mission orientation. The founder needs to be so passionate about solving this particular problem. And that that is true in most of the cases of the startups that we've named. It was certainly true in the case of the Zillow leadership team when, when we were first getting started. But like I always ask founders, why are you doing this? Right. And you can suss out pretty quickly if they're trying to do it for monetary reasons or for mission-oriented reasons. And I mean, I'm pretty allergic to people that are doing things just Yeah, I would say, monetary. so interesting. I would say more, besides passion, it has to be an, an obsession, mm -hmm. right? And, and that obsession has to have a, a personal meaning other than yeah. 
I want to either get rich or I want my face and my company name, you know, shared across social media. Like it, it really needs to come from, from this inner like drive yeah. to really, uh, you know, be aligned with the mission. I mean, I remember I asked a founder of a company, this wasn't a prop tech company, but I asked the founder, what would you do if I told you you couldn't do this? You couldn't pursue this startup idea for whatever reason. And he just looked at me like I was crazy. He's like, He's like, I, I, I was put on earth to solve this problem. I wake up every morning thinking about this problem. I go to sleep every night thinking about this problem. Like, I have to do this. I, He's like, I, I have to. Yeah, like, uh, there is no world in which I don't pursue this. And that was really, you know, that's... Yeah, that, I love that. I was like, take, take my check, take my... Yeah, that, yeah. that's quite... Uh, yeah, I think it really differentiates the teams that are really in it for, for the long run and won't let uh, a few setbacks put, put them back. Now, something that you spoke about, simplicity... Now, we've seen how startups have tried becoming monopolies in, in a little piece of the puzzle. May that be security deposits when you're renting an apartment, or may that be, you know, a little piece, uh, you know, renter's insurance. Like, there's always a theory of, uh, you know, trying to become a monopoly in a very little niche mm. piece and then growing from there. In the last few years, we've seen now actually companies even like Picasso where you're not only the managers and you're also offering governance for second home ownership, fractional second home ownership, but you're also providing financing, mm -hmm. right? I'm challenging your your take there. It sounds like it's actually a bit more you know holistic, the approach, not as simple, however, yeah. uh, more effective. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a great question. Um, companies that are providing like a full stack solution, it creates a lot more complexity for them and a higher degree of difficulty. If you think of like, uh, you know, an Olympic gymnast, it's like, or an Olympic diver, and they always, they're judged on how well they perform that actual task, task but then it's also, it's sort of like multiplied by the degree of difficulty of what right, right. they chose to do. So uh, if you're doing something full stack, it's a higher degree of difficulty, but if you can execute on it, then it can deliver a more beautiful, seamless experience. So Picasso is a good example. We do our own property management on these hundreds and someday thousands or tens of thousands of homes. It will be a lot easier to outsource property management. That would be right. a lot more scalable. Um, we do our own mortgage origination. It'll be a lot easier to outsource that. But that keeping property management in-house and create, doing our own mortgage origination allows us to create what we think is a more beautiful, seamless, excellent, memorable experience for users. So it's a trade-off. Yeah. And uh, I think different startups have to approach it in different ways. And a big question on this is the amount of resources that are available. So yeah. if you know, Picasso was able to raise a lot of venture capital, so we can try to create a full stack solution. If you didn't have a lot of venture capital, you'd have to right. aim smaller. And I actually do like, I mean, you, your experience operators, you, you get, you know, you have the trust of being able to raise more and having more bold visions off the bat. However, we've learned how raising mo funds as a moat isn't enough. That's true, right? Like th that doesn't mean that only because you're able to raise a bunch of capital that you're able to deploy it, execute it, and build, you know, scale a team. No, on, our, on, on the contrary, I think we've seen, uh, you know, there are a lot of examples that would have one believe that sometimes too much capital is a is a bug, not a feature. Right. That it builds bad habits internally, that right. companies wasteful, yeah. they're wasteful, they're not um, frugal. Frugal, they're not, they don't focus, et cetera. So it's, yeah. a, it's a real, you know, it's a real issue. Housing innovation. I mean, so within your role at 75 and Sunny, your venture capital mm -hmm. based out of Los Angeles, um, you do have a, a good focus uh, on housing innovation. Fractional ownership companies like Arrived mm -hmm. and Picasso. Um, brokerage, you know, like radius, like side, and and service providers, uh, more specifically in in renovations and maintenance, like Lesson 
uh, like Block. What's your take there in terms of housing innovation? What are you trying to achieve? Who are you backing there? I'm trying to democratize things that only a small number of people typically have access to. So in the case of Hotwire, my first startup in the late 90s, it was trying to democratize access to staying in a great hotel. It was a four-star hotel for a mm-hmm. two-star price. Mm-hmm. And we provided that value proposition to travelers. In the case of Zillow, it was information transparency, which only previously only practitioners, only professionals had access to. In the case of some of these other startups, like Picasso, it's trying to democratize access to second home ownership. Yeah. Um, in the case of these disruptive brokerage models, like Side, Radius Agent, Avenue 8, these are all cloud-based brokerages that I'm involved in, which are trying to help individual agents keep more of their commission, have, sort of to have, have access to some of the same benefits that if they paid even more of their commission to brokerages, they might be able to have, but at a much lower fee. So this ongoing theme of democratization, the good stuff, you know, the stuff that only the people in the know or the stuff that only really wealthy people have or only, right. you know, top performing people have access to, that's generally what a theme that I invest behind. Very interesting. I mean, talk about Spencer Raskov and Arsenal for Democracy. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, that's a little grandiose, but I'll take it. Too soon, too <laughs> soon. But, uh, you know, Spencer 2028, coming soon. Um, Los Angeles PropTech and the tech ecosystem. I mean, there's, I, I feel like Miami has taken the the headlines in, in terms of where some venture capitalists, some founders are, are relocating from the Bay Area. However, I feel Los Angeles has probably gotten, you know, actual people relocating from the Bay Area. Yeah. Because it's much closer. They're familiar. Same time zone and it still has a lot going for it. So you and 75 and Sony, you're investing in incubating bold solutions to everyday problems. Exactly what you were hinting at before. And that includes prop tech companies, includes the future of work, and includes uh, the creator economy. So what's your vision for investing in these three and, and how does innovating in these three sectors make the sum of its parts larger? Well, I mean, firstly, just focusing on Los Angeles, LA is having a moment and it's clearly become the third biggest tech ecosystem by, behind the Bay Area um, and New York. Mm-hmm. By some measures, it's the second largest tech ecosystem well, behind the Bay Area. And there are a number of reasons for that, but it was, and I'll just to elaborate on what they are, even before COVID, LA was the intersection of media, entertainment, pop culture, um, the creator economy. I mean, so much of tech is now, has become consumerized. Mm-hmm. It is grown through influencers and through social media. And a lot of that is based in Southern California. I mean, the the, the 10,000 people that decide what's cool for all the rest of us in the world mm-hmm, mm-hmm. basically live in LA. The athletes, the celebrities, the influencers, like they all choose mm-hmm. to live in LA. And so that is, um, you know, that's a sea change. Mm-hmm. And that, that's the customer acquisition channel for certainly most consumer businesses, but even many B2B businesses. And then LA also has this really rich history of defense tech and space both of which have been huge parts of the tech ecosystem in LA for 50 years. And then you layer on top of that COVID and the diaspora of people from the Bay Area. And you're right, some of them went to Miami, some of them went to Austin, but a lot of them went to Southern California. You know, LA is just totally booming. And I, one of the companies I started, Dot LA, is a media company that yeah. covers LA tech. We're trying to be the you know, the news and events business that focuses just on LA tech. And it's it's growing very, very quickly. And we've got a huge audience because people are really paying attention to what's happening in LA. Very cool. Yeah, I mean, FYI, for those who don't know, Spencer is also a fellow podcast host. So uh, you should check out Office Hours with Spencer Raskov, part of the Dot .LA network. Yes, thank uh, you. Where you can listen to Spencer speak with uh, CEOs, founders, and VC investors about how to manage lead 
and win in business. Spencer, last but not least, you've been too comfortable here. We've been throwing you, uh, you know, easy balls. I want to put you in the discomfort zone, challenge you. What's something that you've changed your mind about recently? How have you changed your opinion based on new information that was presented to you? Tell us. Well, I mean, I, I guess my opinion about Elon Musk is sort of in flux, let's just say. So I think most founders have always put him on a pedestal up there with uh, Steve Jobs and the Bill Gates and a handful of other visionaries, which he clearly is. But, you know, the way he's, the way he manages companies is very unconventional, to say the least. Mm-hmm. I can still respect his, his product vision while also... Um, Disagree. Yeah. Also being, you know, skeptical and critical of, of the way that he, he manages companies and the way he comports himself. I think it takes a lot of courage saying this, especially, you know, someone who's a uh, you know, in the similar adjacent innovation ecosystem, no doubt that he's one of the, if not the innovators of our generation. Of course. Having said that, no one, doesn't matter how smart, talented, successful you are, should be surrounded by by yes people only. I think in terms of his Achilles heel, he has believed his own success now, which, you know, it's it's one of our human flaws. However, in terms of, you know, having people around you that you can rely that you also encourage to disagree with you. Mm-hmm. I think that's that's what he's missing and that's what's making his brand and maybe his companies uh, be a little shaky. I mean, it's hard to argue with his overall success, of course, but he and his companies could be just as successful with a l- little bit more maturity at sometimes. Right. Less, less, less tweeting, maybe. <laughs> but uh, Spencer Raskoff, co-founder of Pacaso, co-founder of 75 and Sony. Thank you so much for coming to Tangent today. Thank you for having me. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review Tangent and share the show with a friend. This episode is produced by me, Edward Cohen. Thanks for listening to Tangent. And remember, collaboration is our superpower. So stay curious and always be learning.